Welcome to Aspen Health Innovators Behind the Mask. I'm Indu Subaya, co-founder of Health 2.0 and an Aspen Health Innovators Fellow. In this podcast, my co-fellow Deb Gordon and I speak with U.S. healthcare leaders, all members of the Health Innovators Fellowship, to learn how they're leading through these turbulent times. We get behind the masks we wear as leaders and explore the values and tensions at the heart of the decisions we make. In this episode, I speak with Rachel Spiegel, CEO of the Verdes Foundation, an Albuquerque-based company that cultivates, processes, and distributes medical cannabis. We talk about the medical marijuana industry, her call to serve others affected by COVID-19, and how the unrest following the murder of George Floyd sparked her to reevaluate how she leads her organization. Let's jump in. So Rachel, there's so much going on right now. How would you describe um, what you're feeling? And I'm sure it changes, but give us a snapshot of maybe the last week or 10 days. It's been a big few weeks. I feel so many different things and you hit the nail on the head with the fact that it is probably changing. It definitely is. And it shifts moment to moment from empowered to not impactful enough and self-judgment. But all in all, I feel really supported by my community. I feel that I have resources and a whole tool belt of strong leaders within my community to reach in and grab from. And so in that way, um, I feel really stable in and, and protected and surrounded and supported in a way that, that maybe other people in communities, other types of communities or other parts of the country and the world don't have. Do you think that's something unique to the cannabis community, the medical cannabis community? First, it was sort of the challenge with COVID. Um, and then, you know, the most recent moment we're in with the reaction to the murder of George Floyd and the, the protests. Um, what do you think that's bringing out in the medical cannabis community that's unique? I guess to answer the first part of the question, I, um, there is absolutely no support within the cannabis community for each other. Um, all of my support comes from with outside of this industry. And uh, it is a fractured industry that does not have... Um, a lot of support for one another. There's always individuals that are amazing and and that come together, but people are scrambling, writing the playbook as they go and suffering in their own ways and not supported by government infrastructure and uh, appropriate regulatory processes. And the COVID experience is a really good example of that in which this industry um, does not have the same resources that other industries have. So we do not have the PPP um, resources. We do not have small business loans. We are nowhere um, by comparison to other industries that are more established and are not federally illegal. So that has left us in, in real challenging positions, and especially in states like mine, where it is a medical state, and we serve at the pleasure of the governor and the Department of Health, and we are considered an essential business and need to keep our doors open to serve some of the most vulnerable populations in our state, and at the same time are given no resources and no support. And so that has been really, really challenging for us. 
Yeah, I, I, th- I think it's really interesting to think about an industry that you describe as kind of federally illegal still, but then in some ways being this essential service during the COVID era, you know, what was that tension like? How did that, how did that feel? I'm still resolving the anger that I feel around that. Um, my employees ask for resources that I believe they deserve. And they came to work every day to serve really compromised communities across our state. And I was restricted on being able to give them essential worker increased pay because I did not qualify for the resources that existed for other industries. They just feel like we got the golden ticket and we should be really happy that we get to keep our doors open. And I understand that by comparison to those who have had to close their doors, but it doesn't mean that that it's easy for us and it doesn't mean that we don't need to be able to reach out and to, and to get solutions that are meaningful to our employees and meaningful to our business and our communities. Right, and it's so interesting that you, um, you know, highlight that tension. I, I completely understand. And also the responsibility your employees felt to show up uh, for their community. Um, can you say a little bit about the demand actually for medical cannabis during the COVID era? It's, it's been really sad to watch the people with anxiety disorders needing to consume significantly more in order to still maintain the same quality of life that they had prior to the COVID pandemic. We're working really hard to find a balance to where people are not abusing an intoxicant like we're seeing with alcohol consumption during this time and that they are not dissociating from their anxiety and dissociating from their life, but that they're truly using cannabis in a way that that builds wellness and engages them with their challenges. So we're needing even more staff to be available to have these consultations and to provide risk management solutions at the counter and promote other options for people working in conjunction with their cannabis use. Some of our patients are not going in to see the doctor, whether it's because offices are closed. There's very little support services because the medical clinics are operating on a skeleton crew. The hospitals are in the same situation. And being a dispensary with three nurses on staff, sometimes as community health nurses, we are the only option to answer these questions for people. And so um, that shift of responsibility, in addition to our normal work and our normal responsibilities, and for me being a CEO, has, has been a challenge in so many ways. Is allocating my time, allocating my emotions, and to not have the support. There's no one to lean back on. It feels lonely and, and scary. There's no door in a hospital to stick my head out of and yell help. You're kind of catching everything that the traditional quote-unquote healthcare system isn't able to do right now. So how do you prioritize the day in the life, uh, even if you're not always feeling like you're doing it perfectly? Yeah. I I wish I could tell you I had some sort of framework and some like strategic system for making those decisions. Unfortunately, sometimes it's just the fire burning in front of me. One of the ways in which I make this decision is, is this a difference that will make a difference? And at work, I've had to let a lot of that go. 
So allowing my staff to understand that we just can't have it all and we just can't do it all. And so we had to reduce our offerings. And in reducing our offerings, we just needed to come together as a team and agree that that from a business model, that these were the things that were going to affect our bottom line the least. And we were gonna give them up and we'll circle back to it, but that we need to understand that the value of ourselves and our wellness also needs to find balance. I really like that idea of thinking about maintaining, um, because it's not as if that's easy either. Uh, It's its own challenge right now to just sort of keep things um, going and being that sort of, you know, that leadership voice uh, that people rely on. Um, you are very much a spokesperson and um, an advocate who is, you know, on camera and, and in the news. So what does it mean to sort of have to show up um, with your presence right now? Um, and how are you handling that? Or what, you know, maybe advice do you have for people who similarly have to be in public-facing roles like that? Well... I guess the one piece of advice that I have is to really listen to those inner anxieties and to that inner self, uh, to slow down and to really be strategic around the opportunities that you say yes to and make sure that those opportunities have an impact that's meaningful to you. So engaging on policy is really meaningful to me and I continue to do that. New Mexico has a special session coming up, and we've always been very um, involved in legislative processes and making sure that legislation is is along the lines of the policy that we really want to see for this industry. And so I show up for those forums. I show up um, for my community. I went to Gallup to serve as a nurse um, with the Medical Reserve Corps, which is a Department of Health Medical Reserve Corps. And I left work for 10 days to serve in Gallup, New Mexico with very little communication to my team. I would love to know a little bit more about how Gallup came on your radar. Was this a community that you were familiar with before? And how did this opportunity present itself? And and what made you decide to do it? So when I joined the Medical Reserve Corps here in New Mexico, it was just a few months ago. And what I really liked about it was that it was one of the groups that would keep me here in New Mexico versus traveling to other states, which I feel like um, I've, I've always done. I've, I've traveled and, and given myself to other communities, but I haven't been comfortable sitting still long enough to give that to my own community. And then this one for Gallup, which, which put me as far outside of my comfort zone as a deployment could possibly bring me, was the one I just intuitively said yes to. And I said yes to it before speaking to family, before speaking to work. I just said yes. And this Gallup is as far on the boundary of Western New Mexico as you can get. It's minutes before you get to Arizona. It puts me really far outside of my comfort zone. I think it was just the highest peak to climb for me. So it was the one that I really wanted to summit. And the calling was to a nursing home of sorts. It's it's a community home for people who are very low income, 
run by the Little Sisters of the Poor. There was this mix of cultures. They were serving indigenous people um, with their own traditional cultures. And this was a, a Catholic environment. And I hadn't experienced either one, really. So I, I was really interested in what that blending might be and how I could come in as a healthcare professional and help navigate some sort of improvement for, for both the people and, and the sisters who were running this space. What were some of the most striking uh, things that you observed or engaged in while you were there? When I got there, I thought, wow, this this is this is worse than I thought. I, I showed up in a parking lot that was eerily still and empty. There were no signs of anything emergent. There wasn't the sound of ambulances coming and going. It was just this hillside that, that the only sound was the wind. And as I walked down this path past the deities and, and Catholic saints, there were signs everywhere that said, do not enter COVID positive facility. And, um, and I just, I felt like the sweat on my hands and I, I went inside and I was so surprised and overwhelmed by how little medical attention and support and how it was really this like end of life care almost that was being provided in this space for so many residents and I was frustrated for the first 24 hours my first shift of like this can be better and we need to make change and we and and I'm sorry if it's not culturally sensitive but like this is the way we're going to save your life and after a few days I was able to recognize that that there's so much more to the human process than just the system and and the protocols and that it was part of my job always as a nurse is patient autonomy and supporting and advocating for patient autonomy and even if that means allowing people to transition with grace. If, if that's their belief, then that is my responsibility. And that shift um, was really meaningful for me. And one of the examples of that was when a Native American person passes away in at least where I was. I don't know if this is true for all communities or even all Navajos, but where I was, it was it was in a Navajo nation. The individuals that we were serving for three days after someone passes away, that space cannot be inhabited, nor can it really be visited. And it comes from a history of smallpox and you know viruses and, and real reasons, but it is now their tradition and it is their spiritual belief. And here we are with residents that are cohabitating in double rooms and nine people passed away in one week. And those rooms can't be used to isolate other individuals. And, you know, for the first few days, you're just like screaming into your face mask that that's not the priority. The priority is to separate and surrogate people from those who are positive and those who are negative and we're saving lives here people and and then you just realize is it truly a difference that will make a difference 
And where is the respect for the individual values and, and the beliefs and, and how stressful would it be to, to move somebody out of their resident room to a room where they know somebody passed away within the last three days? And, and isn't that spiritual value also important? And reconciling that for myself was just a really interesting internal conversation, one of many. Is there a way to integrate some of that into the world that you entered in so soon after, which then brings us to the moment we're in now with, with the um, racial protests? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I hate to answer this question because it shines a light on ignorance and prejudice that I might have had prior, and that's such an uncomfortable realization. But... Um, I have realized before the murder of George Floyd that I am racially ignorant and and will always be because of the color of my skin. And I see the world only through my own experiences and try desperately to see it through others' experiences. But um, my ignorance is vast. And an example of that was imposing dress codes at our work. I understand that in the cannabis industry, we're overcoming stigmas, and I don't want multiple piercings on people's faces. I want them to dress a very certain professional way, and I want them to always present themselves in a manner that overcomes stigmas. And there is a difference between the subculture of cannabis that has objectified women and the subculture of cannabis that has risen from the black community and the traditional Hispanic curandera community. And those are very different. And by imposing dress codes that um, do not allow for self-expression and that limit facial piercings, I was imposing colonial white standards as to what professionalism looks like. And I had an employee push back on me. Um, and she is a black employee who can say to me as, as a proud black woman that I'm wrong. And those conversations happened years ago and have really landed in me to, to help me understand that making policies through my own lens um, are racially biased and that I have to engage with people of color and people who have different cultural experiences than myself if I'm going to make policies that are diverse and are inclusive. So the George Floyd movement has brought a whole new level of urgency to this. We have built this industry on the backs of Black people, and we have not given them opportunity to participate in something that we have brutally taken away from them through the war on drugs and have incarcerated entire communities over. And I have a lot to reconcile with around that. And I can't give you a great answer and I can't tell you that I have a solution for it. And um, I wake up with a lot of guilt around this every day. And I'm just not sure how much to give away in creating equality from a systematic change 
because I recognize I have 75 employees that, that depend on me for keeping those doors open and keeping them employed. So I don't know what the answer is yet, but I really wanna be a part of it. And I really wanna make sacrifices. I can never sacrifice my own life or my child's life the way the black community has, but I can make other sacrifices and God damn it if, if I don't. So I, I'm trying and, and I'm, asking, I'm asking leaders within the black community for that type of guidance and, and, and direction. You know, Rachel, I'm, as I listen to you, I'm so moved. And a few things that you said about empathy and how, you know, I, we think, well, we're, we're sensitive. We, we want to make a difference. We're empathetic. But you, you tell, in, in your telling of the story and how there's almost an infinite amount of empathy we as humans are capable of and how you describe the increase in empathy that these experiences engendered within you. I think is one of the most powerful lessons in, in your story and how you show up in different ways and how you show up for for yourself and for home. Um, I think I, I will say that um, if I may, I think you are the difference that's making a difference. You know, it's you and it's the work that you're doing in humility and with your with your presence and, and with your voice. So I just thank you as another fellow. Thank you for sharing it. But it is very weighty what you're doing and it is landing. Mm. Thank you. For more information on the Verdes Foundation, visit verdesfoundation.org. Thanks to everyone who made this episode possible. Emily Rubenstein, Rima Cohen, Shannon Rachetti, Phil Havelvana, Kobe Hartberg, and Deb Gordon. Aspen Health Innovators Behind the Mask is a collaboration between Deb Gordon, Indu Subaya, and the Aspen Health Innovators Fellowship. Subscribe to us on your favorite podcast app and follow us at Aspen Institute to stay up to date with our work. For more information, visit aspeninstitute.org backslash HIF. Thanks for listening.